Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 21, Whipply Wobbly Timey Wimey Stuff. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, one of the best ways of doing that is to go on iTunes and leave a review there. It's a great way to spread the word to others, letting them know that you like the show and that it's, you know, alright to listen to. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener, Mikus. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. On Christmas Day, 1620, the construction of the first common house of Plymouth began. So beginning New England. But today, before we continue the narrative in the Plymouth colony, I want to go back to England. The focus of the last few episodes has been on the pilgrims themselves, their adventures. We've only spent a bit of time talking about Western and the London merchants who funded the expedition. This is a very simple version of the story, and now that we have the pilgrims in what would become the United States, it's time to take a bit of a more detailed view of what happened. New England has one of the more complicated histories out there, as things go. Virginia was nice and easy. The Virginia Company was set up, it founded a colony called Virginia, and the colony of Virginia later became a state, also called Virginia. Nice. Simple. Now, things are a bit different with New England. The first thing you'll notice is that there is no state called New England, and there is no state called Plymouth. Why? Right now in the narrative, in 1620, we have Plymouth Colony, which existed in a state of semi-independence. The Pilgrims, you'll recall, were supposed to settle in Virginia. They did not have a charter to settle where they did, and Plymouth Colony would be on shaky legal footing until its absorption into the province of Massachusetts Bay, along with the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the province of Maine, in 1692. The Canadian colonies of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick were also briefly part of the province of Massachusetts Bay, although that's even more confusing and we really don't need to talk about that now. So, Plymouth was on shaky legal footing. If not the Pilgrims, then who had the right to found a colony there? Well, that right belonged to the Council for New England. What on earth is the Council for New England, I hear you ask? Well, it was a colonial joint stock venture set up in 1620, largely dominated by Sir Ferdinando Gorges. Gorges will play a reoccurring role in our story, most notably in the Foundation of Maine, so it's worth briefly introducing him here. He was born around 1566, probably in Somerset in England, and would spend the first half of his life in the military. He would have a very colourful career, which involved him being knighted in 1591. In the early years of the 17th century, he would develop what proved to be a lifelong infatuation with setting up a colony in the New World. He would finally make progress in 1620 by gaining the charter for the Council of New England, which had the right to all lands between 40 and 48 degrees north, and a monopoly of trade and fishing in that region. 
Considering the Plymouth colony set itself up on his land, it's ironic that the colony they were setting up was about as far away as possible for what Gorges wanted. Gorges wanted to set up New England on an aristocratic, Anglican setup. He and his other principal aristocratic investors did not plan on emigrating to New England themselves, or doing anything as base as setting up the colonies themselves. Oh no. They would distribute the lands as a series of manors and fiefs, just like England. There were a few problems with why this wouldn't work, of which three are worth highlighting. First is an observation of my own, namely that attempts to force the structure of the old world on the new rarely went well. The key to success was adaptability. Such an archaic adventure was almost doomed to failure, even if it had been run competently. But, as you often find when aristocrats simply decide to do things, it tends to be a confused mess. As Formula One fans will know, Hesketh Racing, I'm looking at you. This was the case with the Council for New England. The land was not properly surveyed, and so the same bits were handed out multiple times. This would lead to a lot of squabbling between the various claimants and colonies, which would contribute to the confusion of who owns what. Plus, there was an already existing colony on the land with a source of legal claims to it, Plymouth, and the council was in no position to do anything about that. You won't be surprised to learn that the council was dissolved shortly hereafter, and its charter given to the Massachusetts Bay Company, which would colonise the land directly, removing the confusing middleman nature of the Council for New England. Okay, so that's the legal side of things dealt with in England. Now, the Pilgrims. Having selected Plymouth on the edge of Cape Cod Bay for their base, the Pilgrims got to work beginning construction of the first common house in late December 1620, or maybe early January. Actually, I want to explain this date thing in a bit more detail, because it's really bugging me, and unless I do, it won't make any sense to the casual observer of history, who assumes that historians work in a strict linear time progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, to the historian, it's more like trying to untangle a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. The issue is all to do with leap days in the calendar. To explain it, we need to go back to the Roman civil wars of the first century BC. Different societies struggled to keep the solar and lunar calendars in line, but did so in different ways. A lunar calendar, which is the basis for our months, doesn't fit into a solar calendar of 365 days. So, how do you keep the months in line with the years? Well, this was done in ancient Rome by the insertion of days, but during the civil wars this was forgotten about and the calendar became all confused. So, Julius Caesar decided to bring it to order. He created a regular calendar of 365 days, with a leap day inserted every three years, although his maths was a little off, and it was fixed shortly hereafter, to every four years. This creates the Julian calendar we all know and love, aside from the small problem that it didn't work. You see, 
Leap years exist because a solar year isn't exactly 365 days. In school, you're taught that a year is 365.25 days, which is why we insert an extra day every four years, to keep the system intact. But that isn't true. A year is not 365.25 days. It is 365.24 days. This means that if you insert a leap day every four years, you are going to insert an extra day every century. Sort of. The calendar we currently work from, the Gregorian calendar, has a leap year in all years divisible by four, unless the year is divisible by 100. The exception to this is if the year is also divisible by 400. This means that the year 2000 is a leap year, but 2100 is not, 2200 is not, 2300 is not, but 2400 is. So, every 400 years, the calendar would be an extra three days behind because there had been three too many February the 29th. So, while in the Julian calendar the pilgrims set off from Southampton on September 6th and began the construction of Plymouth on December 25th, but on the Gregorian calendar, with the removed extra leap days, these dates would be September 16th and January 4th, respectively. I'm looking forward to the point where the UK adopts the Gregorian reform in 1752, and then we can end this madness. But for the moment, we'll just have to work with it. The Pilgrims had settled at Plymouth. It was a pretty good site. They began to explore the area and found a good variety of trees, including cherry, plum, grapevines, and even sassafras. There were plenty of strawberry plants, watercress, leeks, onions, flax, and hemp. There was also easily accessible clay. As you can imagine from the name Cape Cod, fish were also plentiful. Cod, obviously. But also herring, something they called turbot, but which was more likely some form of flounder or halibut. There was also an abundance of seafood, mussels, clams, crabs, and lobsters. Food wouldn't be too hard to get hold of, but drinks were more of a problem. Water wasn't great. Tea, coffee, cocoa were not yet available, and the pilgrims didn't have access to other drinks, such as cider. Their choices were water or beer. When the beer was cut off shortly after Christmas, it was described as an incredible hardship. There was a storm which followed, interrupting things, but on December 28th, they got back to work on the construction of the settlement, and a plan began to take shape. There were to be 19 families. Several of these were already in existence, but the remainder were created by assigning the single men as would be most convenient. Each family would have a house on a plot which was three rods long and half a rod broad for each person in it. The location of each house was determined by lot. The village would be built with houses either side of a street which ran from the shore to a hill on which a fort would be constructed. This street, interestingly, still exists in Plymouth today, originally known as just the street, it would go through several names, First Street, Great Street, Broad Street, until in 1823 it received the name of Leyden Street, which it has retained. 
We're able to work out what the street almost certainly looked like, and there is a map on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. There were more rain delays while they got on with working, then on January 2nd, 1621, they noticed some fires while collecting dry swamp grass so that they could thatch their roofs. So, the next day, one of the men, Standish, went into the wilderness with five others, hoping to establish contact with the natives. They found wigwams, but no people. So, January carried on, and they continued to work on building their town and exploring the area. One of the Billingtons, who we mentioned last time as a family Bradford was not fond of, explored a small lake, now known as Billington Sea, and they were quite disappointed that it wasn't connected to the Hudson. It's strange to think of the thought process going on here, since, well, we know the geography of the region inside out, but these first explorers really had no idea what they were looking for. Remember how when we talked about Virginia, the settlers kept looking for a sea route to China? Well, a similar thing was going on here. It was thought that this body of water was connected to the Hudson River, and if they could find this, they could prove that New England was an island. The walls of the common house, which they had been working on since Christmas, were finished on January 9th, and then they began work on thatching the roof. This was a traditional English construction technique, particularly in the east of England, which is where the separatists had originally come from all those years ago. It's quite simple. A long grass or reed is used, swamp grass in this particular case. These are waterproof and four or five bundles are placed on top of each other until they are about a foot thick, held in place by a mortar. It was warm in the winter and cool in the summer and can be made very easily from local materials. Indeed, it would be the most common roofing material in England until into the 19th century. The only thing that would displace thatch would be the commercial production of Welsh slate, which began in earnest in the 1820s, and the increased ease of transportation following the Industrial Revolution. The invention of the combine harvester also led to the development of shorter-stemmed wheat, which was less useful for thatch. So, anyway, the first common house was finished, meaning that the workers finally had a place to sleep, in a house, on land. The entirety of the common house was filled with beds for 20 men, so they could now begin working on individual houses for the families. This is where we'll end what has been one of the most unusual episodes I've written. I have a general plan of what I want to cover before starting an episode, and how far I want to get. I had planned to write what would have been a very slow episode, compared to the last few, going from Christmas 1620 to late 1621, maybe into 1622 or 1623. Instead, what I've written has covered 15 days. I don't think I've ever moved a narrative less forward than 15 days, We've also ended up with a discussion of the legal technicalities of colonisation in New England, in 1620, the development of the Julian calendar, and an overview of how to thatch a roof. If there's one thing I'm good at, it's staying on topic. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, you could say how much you've enjoyed it in an iTunes review. It's one of the best ways to spread the podcast to new people. You can also go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, in case you want to check out some maps of Plymouth, or sign up for membership. You can like the show on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. I'm on Instagram too, if you like that sort of thing. Jamie Redfern is my handle. If you have any questions or comments about Thatch, and about how much we talk about Thatch on the podcast, then send me an email. The History of Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time on Thatchcast. Wait, no, that just makes it sound like the podcast is about British politics in the 1980s. Uh, the Thatch Roof Cast? The Thatching Show? Eh, we'll work on the title. Oh, man, this ending its really something. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>